I was just thinking that I'm getting so used to seeing them out there in front of me, I'm going to miss them. (laughs) Till the next retreat, and they're replaced by other yogis. I'll start tonight with a little poem by Hafiz, the Sufi poet. He says, O wondrous creatures, by what strange miracle do you so often not smile? (laughs) I've uh, had to struggle over my life with a kind of negative attitude towards things. Um... I consider myself now a a, a cynic in recovery. (laughs) And this is not to say there aren't things to be cynical about. There are, definitely. Civilization. (laughs) Essentially. (laughs) But the greatest gift, I think, that Dharma has given me is First of all, it taught me how to have a beginner's mind, to be present for things and to look closely, to inquire deeply. And in the process, I have become much more in awe and wonder of this life and this universe that we're all inhabiting. Um, it's a wonderful quality to to have and to arouse. If we if we have if if we have awe in our life, wonder in our life, we won't be so insistent on rearranging the universe. As my friend uh, Joanna Macy says. Awe is an antidote to consumerism. (laughs) You can be satisfied just in the fact of your existence and in the, the wonders that are inside of you and all around you. Of course, we're usually so caught up in our personal drama, we don't we don't see him. We don't see the wonder and wonders and we don't reflect on them enough. And I think that's one of the gifts of the Dharma, you know, where we sit down and we look inside, we see this, this phenomena going on and relatively uh, independent of us and we begin to notice things and, and we begin to wonder more deeply and question more deeply and, you know, how did this come about and what's it all about and where is it going Einstein says, One cannot help but be in awe when one contemplates the mysteries of eternity, of life, of the marvelous structure of reality. It is enough if one tries merely to comprehend a little of this mystery every day. Never lose a holy curiosity. Never lose a holy curiosity. So, I'm going to arouse your holy curiosity tonight. Uh, 
by leading you in a reflection on the mysteries of life and the universe. I call this uh, reflection, Be Here Wow. <laughs> and, uh, let's start with the, the universe. As, uh, as Carl Sagan said, if you're going to make apple pie from scratch, first you have to make a universe. <laughs> there was recently an article in the New Yorker about multiverse, you know, this new theory of many universes. And, and somebody was asking the scientists about it and saying, you know, I just cannot imagine uh, universe after universe all it's just beyond my imagination. And the scientist said, well, if you hadn't been born into this universe and you just looked around, could you have imagined this? <laughs> On the opening page of my internet search engine, I get the astronomy picture of the day chosen by NASA scientists. It's a wonderful, wonderful opening to my day. It's, it's seeing... You know, a, a new a new galaxy's been discovered, discovered, or you know, a picture of a supernova happening. Um, recently, I saw a picture of a newly discovered galaxy called the Sombrero Galaxy. It was shaped like a Mexican hat, and it contains six hundred million suns. Now, you know that that kind of fact kind of rolls off your head or, you know, it's, oh, yeah, okay, that's pretty amazing. You know, 600 million suns. What's really astonishing is when you remember that less than 100 years ago, we knew of one galaxy in the universe and some other thing that people, that the scientists saw, they called a nebula. The latest estimate is that there are 100 to 200 billion galaxies containing 30 to 50 billion trillion suns. Now, who are we now in that immensity? Just a short moment ago, we thought we were the center of the universe. <laughs> and they actually think they've, they've found, they, they've measured the center of the universe, <laughs> truly. Something like twelve it's twelve billion light years away from here, but you know <laughs> and then the scientists say well all all of it all came out of nothing pretty much uh, you know they said there was a big bang, they said there was nothing, and then there was a big bang, but some people said, "Wait a minute." If there was nothing, what banged? And then, and then they went back and they and they they decided there had been something. The inflationary theory said, you know, there was a singularity, there was a point out of which it all came, smaller than an atom. And uh, the Big Bang uh, exploded, and that that little dot created all of these billions of galaxies and suns and you and me and everything we can know of a name, all came out of the explosion of a tiny dot smaller than an atom. Now, I ask you, is that more 
feasible than the idea of a God who created everything in six days. <laughs> Which is more fantastic? I mean, take your pick. It's a wonderful image. A trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. They say the universe was six feet in diameter. The whole universe was. It's some universe you can get your mind around, you know. <laughs> now, I read an estimate the universe is 10 billion trillion trillion cubic light years large. That was approximately. That was <laughs> the estimate of some some astro astrophysicist, you know. What's really kind of interesting and I find very exciting the new Kepler space telescope is finding evidence of hundreds, if not thousands, of planets in our galaxy alone that could support life. Planets going around their sun in the so-called Goldilocks zone. Not too hot, not too cold. <laughs> um, but if there's a few hundred, a few thousand in our galaxy, I mean, and there's 20, there's two hundred billion galaxies, the chances are there is life all over the place out there. And that, I think, is good news. Because it takes the pressure off of us. <laughs> Does it not? We, we no longer have to carry the entire burden of meaning in the cosmos. You know, It's not just about us. Who knows? We are still using the energy of the Big Bang, you know. Every, everything that is in existence comes out of that primal explosion. So right now inside your head, millions of synapses are firing. We hope that. That is the energy of the Big Bang trying to comprehend the Big Bang. It's like we're like pieces of the universe wondering about itself. I think it's good to remember. I, I try to remember when I get into a funk. It's taken the universe 13.7 billion years to make me. <laughs> Cause for some self-esteem, you know. <laughs> what a project. What a project. You know, in Asia, in the, the Asian wisdom traditions, that they have always had a much vaster sense of uh, cosmology, uh, the universe, uh, and our role, at least in this particular incarnation, is just, you know, one of many. And it just, the vastness is, is, is great. This is the uh, Avatamsaka Sutra, which is a 
Mahayana Sutra that uh, is a wonderful but very uh, detailed and elaborate read. This is the uh, Avatamsaka Sutra trying to explain how many worlds are known to a Buddha. Uh, It starts like this, 10 to the 10th power times 10 to the 10th power equals 10 to the 20th power. Uh, This calculation goes on for several pages until it reaches a number 35 digits long. Then it goes on to say that that number squared is an incalculable. An incalculable to the fourth power is a boundless. A boundless to the fourth power is an incomparable. Incomparable to the fourth power is an innumerable. An innumerable to the fourth power is an unaccountable, unthinkable, immeasurable, unspeakable, and uh, untold. And an untold is unspeakably unspeakable. (laughs) That's how many worlds are known to a Buddha. This universe that we're living in is a real trickster. I like the uh, fact that uh, scientists say the entire universe is suffused with the gas helium. So that means my voice is actually an octave lower than it sounds to you. None of us have ever heard our true voices. None of us have heard our true voices. Lately, uh, as you've probably been reading, they're saying that the universe is composed of 70% dark energy. Which could explain a lot. (laughs) And the dark energy is causing the universe to expand faster and faster. As if somebody was eager to get it over with, you know. But 20, uh, 70% dark energy and something like 20% dark matter. And they aren't the same, but they know the dark matter's there or else the galaxies would fall apart. Um, and the dark energy, you know, they, they just can't see these things. That's why they're called dark matter and dark energy. But, but they're, they're finding a whole new realm of, of particles and... It's just phenomenal, the, the revolution going on. Now, the trickster nature of the universe, it looks like a lot, of, a lot of stuff here, but there's actually hardly any stuff here at all because everything we perceive is made of atoms, and atoms are 99.999% empty space. Did I get enough nines in there? Uh, I don't know if you had a high school physics teacher who said, you know, you blow up the nucleus of an atom millions of times till it's the size of a pea. The electron going around that nucleus will be the size of a grain of sand, and it'll be a half a mile away. There's hardly any matter to matter. (laughs) It's mostly empty space. So why don't we, you know, why aren't we falling through the floor? Why aren't we falling through the earth? 
It's like a magic act. Mm -hmm. If your body's made of atoms and atoms are mostly empty space, what is holding your clothes on? (laughs) Not only does the emperor have no clothes, (laughs) the clothes hardly have any emperor. They've now, of course, broken the atom down into three subatomic particles, quarks, leptons, and gluons. And I think the gluons hold the quarks and the leptons together. <laughs> but you know, now they talk about antimatter. They say the universe is filled with antimatter. Every time a particle of matter meets a particle of antimatter, they annihilate each other. And, and the universe is filled with antimatter. I think it's proof that whoever, whatever created the universe in the first place was somewhat ambivalent. <laughs> but it's a strange, strange place we're living in. We think everything is so real. Our scientists have, however, now have come to the same conclusion the mystics have uh, been espousing for centuries, which is that consciousness plays a major role in the creation of reality. Um, The Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics says, and I quote, there is no reality in the absence of observation. The mind is what creates reality. I, I sometimes have people you know, do a little scientific experiment. Everybody look over to this side of the room. And then that side of the room should disappear. <laughs> but it always seems to reassemble itself or somebody peeks. And, you know, it, but there is, there is a, a, an apocryphal story that maybe that uh, there's a group of lamas in the Himalayas holding the world together by paying attention just so that we live through the karma of this life. But at the very core of matter, they found, of course, energy. Uh, There's really no solidity. There's really no thingness. Everything is in process at at an atomic level. And a subatomic level, there's, there's, there's nothing here. One scientist said, matter is gravitationally trapped light. It's all a light show. I think it's the ultimate irony that in a civilization thoroughly devoted to materialism, our scientists would discover that matter doesn't even exist. <laughs> Sokni Rinpoche says, you Westerners, you have a real problem. You think everything's so real. (laughs) You know, that's one of the things, when you sit and meditate and you really, your mind really becomes focused and it settles and you start to see phenomena, it's almost effervescent, you know, that things are just vibrating 
and, and things are changing so quickly. It's, it's sort of like you, you start to have an experiential understanding of what this revolution in science is talking about. Changes. You know, they're now measuring phenomena that change uh, every millionth of a trillionth of a second. And they call that, that interval uh, attosecond. And then they started measuring things that change every billionth of a trillionth of a second, and they called that a yoctosecond. And then they started measuring things that change every trillionth of a trillionth of a second, and they called that a zeptosecond. So now you have atto, zepto, and yocto, which is a Marx Brothers routine, essentially. <laughs> That's how fast things are changing. What else do we have? Well, it's, you know, the, 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 the marvel of uh, the wonders of the universe. Stati- statisticians can... Did I say that right? Stati- yeah, statisticians... Uh, could tell you about how improbable it is that we are here in this body with this mind, uh, contemplating being here in this body with this mind. Everything had to be just as it was from the beginning of the whole show. Uh, if the, if the uh, neutron had been a little bigger or a little smaller, or the electrons going around uh, an atom had been a little smaller or a little bigger, or the electromagnetic force holding atoms together had been a little weaker, a little stronger, everything would have come apart, or no uh, molecules would have been created, and no, you know, no elements would have been created, no carbon. Where would you be then? carbon-based life form, Uh, no oxygen. Everything had to be exactly as it was. In every circumstance, and there were millions of them, and over time, over the evolution of elements and, you know, uh, living beings, amino acids, and everything had to be just as it was, calibrated as it was, it's phenomenal to imagine, you know, the chances of it happening. Now, I mean, scientists like uh, uh, Stephen Gould say, if, if you uh, started evolution again from, say, the Cambrian explosion, which was, I don't know, five, 300 million years ago or billion years ago, I don't know. I lose it sometimes. So many billions and millions and... But if you uh, took evolution back and had another Cambrian explosion, which was a big catastrophe, and then life started evolving again, uh, be trillions of uh, the odds against us appearing again like this would be one in a trillion trillion. You know, I I forgot the number, but (laughs) but this is a very 
precise. It required causes and conditions, innumerable causes and conditions, to be just as they were. I sometimes think we need a little bit of a, a, a ritual or, or ceremony around the whole story of, of cosmic and biological evolution. And I think that we could start by chanting the table of basic elements. <laughs> Hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon, that's got a lot of ums and ons. It's sort of mantra quality. And do you know the way the, the Earth evolved going around our sun at just the right distance to create beings like us? If the sun, if the Earth had been a little closer to the sun, not that much closer, life might not have been possible. All the water would have evaporated. We might have all been or huddled at the poles, you know, just trying to stay cool. If it had, the Earth had been a little further away, you know, we'd all be gathered around the equator. The fact that we have a moon that that supports uh, our, the tilt of the Earth, and not if if the moon wasn't there, the Earth would go spinning much too wildly for any kind of a regular pattern of seasons to take place. There's so many. You can just go through so many circumstances. Uh, James Lovelock, who uh, sort of invented the Gaia hypothesis, came to it, says... uh, it's amazing that the Earth has maintained a steady, oxygen-rich atmosphere for most of the last three and a half billion years. About 21% oxygen in the atmosphere, a little more, and everything would burn up a little less, and complex beings like us would not have evolved. Lovelock says, The climate and chemical properties of the Earth now and throughout its history seem always to have been optimal for life. For this to have happened by chance is as unlikely as to survive unscathed a drive blindfold through rush hour traffic. <laughs> kind of a graphic uh, way of putting it. I like it when these you know, really hardcore scientists uh, express their own awe at the mystery of it, the, the sort of inexplainable... Uh, you know, fact of of the existence of this planet and us, us who wonder about it. This is uh, Richard Dawkins. My overwhelming reaction to the story of evolution is one of amazement. The universe could so easily have remained lifeless and simple, just physics and chemistry, just the scattered dust of the cosmic explosion that gave birth to time and space. The fact that it did not, the fact that life evolved out of nearly nothing some 10 billion years after the universe evolved out of literally nothing is a fact so staggering I would be mad to attempt words to convey it properly. 
And even that is not the end of the matter. Not only is life on this planet amazing and deeply satisfying to all whose senses have not become dulled by familiarity, the very fact that we have evolved the brain power to understand our evolutionary genesis redoubles the amazement and compounds the satisfaction. The Buddha, the Buddha really understood. He, he gave this parable of a turtle set loose on the seven seas, and there's a yoke also afloat on the seven seas. And the chances of that turtle surfacing through that yoke are the same chances you have of being born a human. Uh, so the, the admonishment is to make good use of it. While we're still here on the earth, uh, I don't know if I, if I related this to you, but you know that we are spinning around on the earth's axis. Uh, I, I said that, yeah? So you know we're going around about 1,000 miles an hour. We're going about 60,000 miles an hour in our orbit around the sun. But the entire Milky Way, or no, I'm sorry, the entire solar system is traveling around the Milky Way galaxy at about a half a million miles an hour. And the entire Milky Way galaxy is traveling about a, a half a million miles an hour towards a supercluster of galaxies, and they call the supercluster of galaxies the Great Attractor. And the Great Attractor is hurling towards uh, another supercluster of galaxies called the Shapely Attractor. It is, you know, we are on a ride, huge ride. So, the story of evolution, our, our collective autobiography, just a little bit about how, you know, we come to be shaped like this, you know, as I talked about the other night, of uh, our dance with nature, d- nature demanding that for survival we grow new appendages, new ways of sensing, and that, you know, there were no legs before about a billion and a half or two billion years ago because there was no land. Um, But each of us, as we develop uh, as humans, go through the entire history of life on this planet. We all start life as a single cell, shape of an egg. Once the egg is fertilized, the DNA code guides it through the whole history of life. The single cell grows into a multi-celled sphere, a tubular, worm-like body. The human embryo grows rudimentary fins and gills and webbed fingers and toes, the features of reptiles and amphibians. As we cycle through the DNA of all these ancient ancestors, even after we start to grow arms and legs, we resemble the embryos of pigs and rabbits. And all this happens in the warm sea of the womb, and at birth we repeat the exodus from the ocean and land in the world. So we all repeat the big story in our little story. 
Darwin noticed that all creatures with limbs have common skeletal designs. Even the bone structure is similar. He said, the framework of bones being the same in the hand of a man, the wing of a bat, the fin of a porpoise, and the leg of a horse, at once explain themselves in the theory of descent with modification. The reason for our common skeletal pattern is because we share a common ancestor with all those other species I just mentioned. The ancestor was fish. So the the whole story of evolution is a real uh, teaching of anatta because it says that all of these different elements coming together and doing their dance with nature uh, is what calls us into existence. And then as nature continues to change, so does life. And uh, we are a temporary appearance out of this ongoing stream. As as I think I said the other night, uh, Buddha once said, you know, this body is not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions. So let's go into into our uh, body just a little bit here and the wonder inside of us. early universe created particles and then elements and then atoms somehow organized themselves to create molecules of amino acids and proteins the stuff of life and over millennia designed you a being with a hundred trillion cells all working together for their own well-being and it turns out of course for yours or at least your well-being for a while and somehow these cells knew how to build these complex systems for seeing, hearing, thinking, even self-awareness. And a whole alarm system that's on constant outlook for threats and opportunities. Now you don't have to, you're sitting here, you don't have to worry about beating your heart or breathing your breath. Digestion is happening. Rods and cones in your eyes are coloring the world. Neurons in your brain are making sense of my words. You don't even have to think about thinking. The brain will do it for you. We don't create any of this. It's like nature uh, sculpted this being and it lives through us. You aren't doing, you're being done. Or, to put it another way, you are the dude. You're not not the doer, you're the dude. Just a, a couple little things, like I talked before about braciating and how that... But 
the sense organs. Darwin, this is Darwin. Nature has evolved organs of extreme perfection and complication which justly excite our admiration. So British, so reserved, but he was pretty amazed. Um, So let's think for a minute about our hearing. You know that there is no sound in the outside world. That I'm here flapping my lips and tongue and creating this vibration and this disturbance in the air, which then these waves go and hit the drum of your ear, which then uh, moves these three little bones, which previously were bones of a jaw of a fish, but now are part of your hearing mechanism. I don't know how it happened, but it... (laughs) And the three little bones excite a little pool of liquid, which then uh, excites some little hairs and and goes into the uh, nerve that takes these waves to the audio part of the brain, and that's where sound is created. It's all happening inside your head. It's, it's, it's so phenomenal when, when I think about it. You know, what we call sound is purely a creation of our brain and nervous system. So the next time you hear some music, you know that you know you're you not, you don't have to take music lessons anymore. You're you know you're the maestro, <laughs> and you're playing all the parts. And but that's going on in all of our senses. That kind of uh, self-generating uh, ability to do what we needed to do, which is to read the environment. Read the environment at a distance. That's why we have, you know, developed this this sense of hearing. Something happens over there. The wave comes and hits the drum of my ear, and I know it's happening. And then there's eyes. Of course, you know, I'm sure you're somewhat aware of uh, the greatest painter that ever lived, there's no color in the world. You knew that. You know that. It's a, the rods and cones in your eyes, paint are giving the hue to everything here. Otherwise, it'd be all black and white. What a bore. Well, there's some good black and white uh, pictures too. But and also, what you see right now is not the original. It's actually a replica of what. Uh, what you see, uh, what you think you see, is actually created in your brain. Photons, streams of photons, hit the uh, the lens of your eye, uh, the screen of your retina, which can, contains over a hundred million receptor cells, and uh, then the uh, visual, uh, the, there are the two big nerve uh, bundles that send the signals of, that were created on, uh, by the photons to the visual center of the brain, the uh, 
Uh, and they don't send the picture. They send just electrical signals. And then the brain goes into like this conference call and says, well, do, what do we need to see here? And is there any threat? And is it familiar? And all sorts of considerations. And then basically paints you moment after moment a picture of what you're seeing. But, you know, it's all going on within you and without you. And of course, as you change, as you look at me and then you might look down at your socks and look back up, focus changes, you know, uh, the lighting, everything, everything is, it's a camera for dummies, you know, it's amazing. (laughs) So, your mind and senses are the true creators of this sound and light show. Alfred North Whitehead, the philosopher, said, The various qualities of the world are purely the creation of the mind. Nature always gets credit, which should should in truth be reserved for ourselves. The rose gets credit for its scent, the nightingale for its song, and the sun for its radiance. But the poets are mistaken. They should address their lyrics to themselves. And then, of course, there's the brain. Processing an estimated 11 million bits of information a second and constructing for you this picture of reality, everything you need to know for the sake of your survival and enjoyment. And scientists are discovering there's no director, that there's nobody up there running the show, (laughs) as it seems to us. Um, as one scientist put it, most, almost all of our reality and our reactions to it are processed on a subconscious, non-personal level. Every little group of cells is doing exactly what it's built to do, but has no notion of who it's doing it for or... Uh, no notion of it being part of a self or soul, just doing its little job. Now, about uh, 10 years, well, now 15 years ago now, sometime in the mid-90s, I guess it's a long time ago, there was a Time Magazine article, cover story actually, saying, In Search of the Mind. And... uh, It was a summary of the latest neuroscience research. The last paragraph of this article was so astonishing to me that I had to write it down. The Time article concluded, Despite our every instinct to the contrary, consciousness is not some entity inside the brain that corresponds to self, some kernel of awareness that runs the show. After more than a century of looking for it, brain researchers have concluded that such a self simply does not exist. This was in Time magazine, (laughs) saying that the self does not exist. There should have been a a nationwide panic of some kind, I would think. (laughs) People leaping out of buildings. It turns out the brain is a self-organizing system that doesn't need a director. And... uh, 
you know, the, the fact that we're intervening and uh, trying to provide some direction is, is perhaps a, a, a new part of uh, what evolution wants. I don't know. This is the neuroscientist Daniel Dennett. You enter the brain through the eye, march up the optic nerve, round and round the cortex, looking behind every neuron, and before you know it, you emerge into daylight on the spike of a motor nerve impulse, scratching your head and wondering where the self is. (laughs) So, we can't find the self, but we sure can find wonder and mystery in the marvelous complexity of this being that we are, that each of us is. And uh, the mystery of this universe, why it's here and why there's so much of it and what is our role. And, and not even, you know, it's, not, it's like you don't even need an answer. Just the question sort of arouses a kind of, it's a, it's a kind of uh, extracts you from your own drama, you know, your own personal destiny. And it makes you part of a much bigger picture, which I find pretty, pretty delightful. Sometimes the big picture doesn't help. I can still feel pretty miserable, but quite often it just uh, sparks that that holy curiosity, that wonder. So that's, uh, I think that's about it for Be Here While Tonight. Um, you know, you can make up your own reflections and, and recall, you know, make a list of a page or two of Facts that blow your mind. One way, I think, to arouse wonder and, and, uh, and awe is to sit as if you had never experienced yourself before. Like this was the first time you had ever noticed yourself. So, I think I have a poem I wanted to read. Ah. Mary Oliver again? I don't know. I still have a few left. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going to read this one. I, I, love, I love this poem. It's called Gravel. The poem is called Gravel. If you ever get to read the whole thing, this is an excerpt of it. It's a fabulous poem. Is it by Mary Oliver? Yes, it is. <laughs> and she's saying goodbye to everything. It's really, it's a mover. 
It is the nature of stone to be satisfied. It is the nature of water to want to be somewhere else. Everywhere we look, the sweet guttural swill of the water tumbling. Everywhere we look, the stone basking in the sun or offering itself to the golden lichen. It is our nature not only to see that the world is beautiful, but to stand in the dark under the stars or at noon in the rainfall of light, frenzied, wringing our hands, half mad, saying over and over, what does it mean that the world is beautiful? What does it mean? The child asks this, and the determined laboring adult asks this, and the carpenter and the scholar ask this, and the fisherman and the teacher. Both the rich and the poor ask this, maybe the poor more than the rich. And the old and the very old, not yet having figured it out, ask this. Standing beside the golden-coated field rock or the tumbling water or under the stars, what does it mean? What does it mean? Just so we don't give Mary Oliver the last word again, a little little poem here by Kurt Vonnegut. (laughs) God made mud. Then God got lonesome. God said to some of the mud, sit up. (laughs) See all I've made, said God, the hills, the sea, the sky, the stars. And I was some of the mud that got to sit up and look around. Lucky me, lucky mud. I sat up and saw what a nice job God had done. Nice going, God, I said. Nobody but you could have done it. I certainly couldn't have. In fact, I feel very unimportant compared to you. The only way I can feel the least bit important is to think of all the mud that didn't even get to sit up and look around. I got so much, and most mud got so little. Let's sit for a minute or two before we break. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.